What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Hi, this is Jess Larson. Welcome to Ideation Collective. Today on the show, we've got Trion Muller. We've known us for a long time, but think about it. When we went to school back in the 90s or even the 80s, 70s, 60s, we've known about information process theory or cognitive load theory, and yet we haven't done anything. Guess what? We go, we go to a training or we go to a, a lecture for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours, and it's just lecture. It's not helping our overload of our brain. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash child rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Trion, thanks for being on the show. Welcome. It's good to be here. So you've written five books. You've got a master's degree in adult learning. Um, you work at Franklin Covey, you know, one of the top three largest training companies in the world. I think uh, their public filing said they did $187 million last year. And t- tell us your title at Franklin Covey. Um, Chief e-learning architect. Okay. Fancy word. Fancy title. <laughs> well, um, start us off... Um, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show started about the perspective of growing up in South Africa before coming over here to the States. Tell us, tell us about what that was like growing up and being around during the change from apartheid and, and how you think that has um, given you an advantage on, on tapping into what it's like around the world as, as you help grow a business here. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, you know, it was a blessing being there in South Africa right at, when apartheid was done away with. A lot of changes happened um, to the country, not only physically, but also with the uh, the whole emotional, everything was completely uh, turned upside down in, in a lot of good ways. And um, so I grew up very poor, so I was lucky, and I tell people that I was poor, that that was a good thing because it helped me um, understand the reality and not the propaganda that we were taught in school mm. about people of color. Now, I'm white, and so um, there's a lot of assumptions that were made I was never a racist, partly because I was poor and grew up with a lot of my fellow black friends. And so um, that was a blessing. I wasn't sheltered and taught the propaganda. And uh, you know, there were some crazy things that we learned in school. So that was a blessing. And so that when uh, time came for change, I was not only ready for it, but excited because now my friends who I knew were just like me, just had different skin color, 
could now get the same rights that I had. And so I, I remember standing just for four hours waiting to vote in the first general election in 300 years in South Africa. And it was quite the experience with people of all different you know, races uh, standing to vote. It was fantastic. Four hours. It, it great, gave new meaning and uh, to what it means when you come to America and you have the right to vote. Now I'm an American citizen, so I take advantage of that. Every time I can vote, I go and vote. And I've never stood in a four-hour line. <laughs> so that's something that sometimes we feel that our vote doesn't count. But just the fact that we can make it is a great thing. But that's one political view. But from a, another sense, I got to you know, be with a lot of people from different backgrounds. And South Africa is very diverse. There's German, Indian, as in from East India. Um, there's Portuguese. There's French. There's Dutch, uh, English so much influence and, and different groups that have settled South Africa that uh, opened up my mind to um, how different c people and different cultures work and how they communicate, which has truly helped me, I feel, to be a good communicator in business in general. That's great. Well, and I'm just guessing here, but, you know, as Franklin Covey sells literally around the world, I'm guessing that it gives you some more context as you think about what this might be like for, for people in other countries consuming your content. Is that accurate? Yes. Well, so Franklin Covey, for those that don't know, we are a consultant and solutions company. We provide solutions for companies when it comes to leadership, productivity, sales, and um, trust. We have several practices that focus on solutions for companies. So we sell training, in essence, and then help them, companies move to a different area. And... Um, we try to be very global in our appeal. We make sure because we are a global company. So when we, so we build training products, and that's what I help do as chief e-learning architect. I focus mainly on digital or you know e-learning products, and but everything we build, we have to keep in mind that we have to build it for global audience. It's not just for U.S.-based English-speaking audience, and um, and that doesn't mean you put someone with an African-American face, an Asian face, and a white face in your videos because they're all American. It, it, it's cultural. It's colors that you involve. Not, not skin color, but clothing, and, and it's uh, the backgrounds. And So we actually fly to uh, these different countries and, and sometimes film in their language and do English subtitles to some of our videos. So it, it definitely has helped me. Um, it's something that comes naturally for me to, to look and see, you know, when, when you're building these training, this, these teaching moments, to find opportunities to bring in the cultural differences uh, and do it in an accurate way. Sure. Uh, well, you know, on the show, a lot of times we're talking about innovation and marketing and leadership, and, and obviously um, you guys have got books like that that are amazing, marketing, inbound marketing, you know, the books by Stephen Covey and, and the other authors that are huge inbound marketing opportunity. I mean, um, have you seen that evolve over time at, as far as what the books have brought in or ways to, to do the marketing, you know, using the books to draw people in? Yeah, good question. So when Stephen first started, Stephen Covey, when he first wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that was 1987. Uh, what was it, 89? I get confused between those two dates. But I remember reading it in 89 for the first time and was very impressed by it. At the time, uh, we didn't have the, the technology and the internet we do today. So books were very much uh, what brought people to training. People read a book and say, I wish there was a training on it. So that's actually what happened. They wrote the book. They're doing some training already, but then they wrote the book and said, oh, let's do training around the book. 
and they created the seven habits of highly effective training. And we still teach that today. We've updated since then several times, um, you know, newer videos and stuff like that. But the principles are the same. But when you come to when it comes to marketing, um, I think things have changed dramatically. We we have to think differently about marketing. And for us, the purpose of marketing is to bring people to our training, to buy our training. Otherwise, it's fruitless. That's the job we we have to do. And so it's changed a little. The books themselves still do well. It's funny. The Seven Habits, for example, is still in the top – I think it's the top 10 best-selling book, a self-help book every week. And, and, and I don't know which – I think it's the New York best-selling list or something like that. It's one of these you know, rep- reputable, credible sources. But it's still doing well because of the principles. So to answer your question, how we, we use those principles to, um, to reach out to people and we do it now. Everything's done digitally. And a lot of our marketing is done B2B, so business to business. It's not so much B2C or business to, you know, directly to the customer anymore, which is typically what it was before. Now it's we go to businesses who want solutions to problems, and some of them don't even know what the seven habits are anymore. So we go to with a say with a solution to problems that we feel they have, and sometimes it's you know we built it around our products, but our products also competency based so I hope I'm, I'm rambling a little but things have changed a little and we, that's how we approach it with the business to business marketing before I think it was more B2C yeah well it's funny you know the book's been around so long that it, in some circles people almost like to uh, try and poke holes in it and stuff I guess it's almost a sport for, for some other groups I know but it's funny you talk about those principles that are like, I don't know, it's like they're just truth or something. I was sitting there yesterday at a store picking something out, thinking about this show and uh, some things that need to get done. And I said, or I was at the bank and they're asking me how my day was. <laughs> and they said, uh, they said, how's your day gone so far? And I thought, I said, you ever have those days where you've been working a lot, but you haven't started at all on the only one thing you need to get done today? Yeah. Like the whole idea of putting first things first, <laughs> I was dropping the ball. And I just, I immediately thought of that book. I was I forgot we had this interview today, but those principles, I think, have, have you know, stood the test of time here yeah. 25 years later, whatever. It has been. An, it's the best-selling self-help, self-help book of all time. But what is interesting and what people need to know, the, one of my favorite chapters in that book is the last chapter. And it actually talks about... Stephen's research on the book. Mm. He spent, he took a year sabbatical from teaching at a university and he went to Hawaii, <laughs> but he spent every day in the library and he studied a lot of um, great leaders, religious, political, you name it, over time. And and what he gleaned from these great people were certain patterns that, that would float to the top with all of them. And that's what he came up with the seven habits. He he's never claimed to invent those. Those are those are true universal principles that have been around since the beginning of time. He just put it into pithy statements like "think win-win," seek first to understand, then to be understood. So the great thing is, Jess, I get to work with this wonderful content, and and put it into a digital format that uh, people it's easy for people to digest. People don't have time or don't want to, especially the modern learner, to sit down into a room for a day or two days or three days, not to mention a week, and learn principles. They want to learn it in the seams of the day. And that's where I have the great job of taking this content, its incredible principles, and putting it into these different formats. Okay, this is a great transition. And um, I want to talk about the innovation that you guys have been doing that has really become marketing. I mean, you got such product market fit with the new direction you've gone. And I know you can't 
share the numbers on just, just how well the sales sales have gone up. But can you tell us about this idea of transforming from the old paradigm of a training company to, to what you guys came up with and, and maybe just give some insight on why you think it's been so uh, well adopted by customers and why they've signed up so much for it. Okay. Good, good question. I think first of all, let's start off with traditional approach to training, which is butts and seats uh, or selling kits. And so Franklin Covey, we've built a business on this, a very successful business worldwide on getting people in person into a training room. And, you know, we sell them either being present, but mostly it's selling kits to companies who then do the training. Um, where this change has happened, and in the last several years, Franklin Covey has done a great job in investing in people like myself, um, and I've been with the company for 10 years now, to look at where the future of training is going. So we've been able to build digital solutions, subscription models that are completely opposite. It's almost a um, disruption. So it's the innovator's solution, if you think of Clayton Christensen, to um, the innovator's dilemma, which is Franklin Covey building a big business, doing something a certain way. But luckily we had the side business, which is our digital team, building the same products, but well, not, not, not the same products, the same content, and building product solutions for them, and doing it. And one of the greatest successes we've just barely been we've been doing it for several years, but we've seen some great influx lately, is with subscriptions. And so that's a great revenue model that has nothing to do necessarily with kits. It has to do with people wanting bite-sized learning. Um, in the seams of the day when they want to take learning, not when something is scheduled where they have to fly to, stay at a hotel. Um, and so we've truly been innovative over the last several years, but it's starting to manifest itself and be very successful just of late. And so tell us what that new program looks like. So we have something called the All Access Pass. It gives access to Franklin Covey's all of our content. Um, and it's, it's a great – I can't share too much information because we're in the beginning stages of this and I'm not sure where exactly we're going to go. So it's, it gives access to our training, whether it's live, live online. So we do a lot of webinars as well. And uh, that's an area that we've really excelled in because we do it differently and better than anyone else. We're talking about a very interactive, engaging experience every one, two, three minutes. And actually two of my books that I've written have been on that and how to do it effectively. And then uh, the subscription model, which is a self-paced, um, bite-sized learning approach to learning. Um, so this, I mean, you and I, we've been having conversations for weeks about, you know, some of the, the new paper you're writing and these different things about uh, understanding how humans want to learn. Tell us a, a little bit about the research you've been doing on that. So it's, it's fascinating to me, and it's not new. It, it seems new because technology, just in the last five years alone, five to ten years has changed our perception of how we learn. Think about the devices we have in our pockets. They are built with using apps that have one purpose. You go there to learn one thing, to do one thing. There's one purpose in it. And you do it when you want to do it, and you don't spend a lot of time on it. This is social media, and that's wasteful in in many cases. But a lot of things we do, um, think about if we have a question to something, whether it's business or personal, what do we do? We Google it. So... That has become um, the go-to solution. And, you go, and it, by the way, Google takes you to YouTube, takes you to LinkedIn, takes you to um, various resources to find the answers. And they, in, in one of my books, it's called The Learning Explosion, we give a name to that. And we call these learning fragments. And learning fragments uh, are just literally, there's millions of them out there because of the web. 
that we can access. Now, some of them are credible, some of them are not. Most of them are because of the way things are vetted now online, especially if you go to credible places like Wikipedia. Who would have thought that it's 98% accurate? And because it's been cross-referenced and there's sources. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that there's such a great um, resource for us. If we have any question, if you want anything, we can get it for free. Now, that is a challenge for companies like Franklin Covey. Who are selling information. Who are selling information and yeah. training. And um, the, the difference is Franklin Covey does the research for you, neatly packages it up, and presents it in, presents it in a clean and in a, in a manner that you can understand it, as opposed to you having to glean all the information and spend more time on it. So there's, there's benefits to what Franklin Covey does, but that is one of our greatest competitors is the fact that learning fragments are free. But the interesting, th- interesting thing about this is even though you know we've had the web, we haven't had it for that long. Tim Berners-Lee, the real inventor of the, the web, actually helped with this um, back in th- – the early 90s, we had our first uh, browser come up in 94, Netscape. Um, and But since then, it's, it's grown immensely. It's only 20 years, though. And so in the last 20 years, we've had the web as we know it, but really only in the last 10 years as we know it. And um, But before that, I want to take us back you know, over 50 years. 1956, a, um, a professor at Princeton, George Miller, he came up with a theory called information processing theory. In it, he, you've all heard this. He talks about the magic number seven. We can't remember things unless they within pl- you know seven plus or minus two. So that's why our telephone numbers fall within that range. By the way, it's because of this magic number seven. But everything um, he said, we can process information if it's within that realm. So from five to nine, obviously less than five as well. But between that uh, nine and and less, we can process and remember things that are uh, within that um, range. He also spoke about 20 minutes, and he did a lot of studies showing that no matter how charming a facilitator, instructor, how compelling the content, that after 20 minutes, the, the learner has lost, just literally loses complete attention and doesn't listen at all. And, and yet, this is 1956, 1976, 1996, every decade we have studies reinforcing what George Miller Shared with us, and '96 uh, we started with cognitive load theory, and th- th- which is by, by the way just a newer version of information processing theory, which says the same thing. We can't, our brains cannot deal with the overload of information, and after 20 minutes of like instruction, and now it's actually less because we show that uh, because of modern learner and so much technology that our attention is lost after a much shorter time. My point is. We've known this for a long time, but think about it. When we went to school back in the 90s or even the 80s, 70s, 60s, we've known about information process theory or cognitive load theory, and yet we haven't done anything. Guess what? We go, we go to a training or we go to a, a lecture for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours, and it's just lecture. It's not helping our overload of our brain. So luckily, technology – and I, I don't think this is by chance. I think this is research. I think this is when, when Apple created apps at the App Store. I think they realized that this was something to keep in mind, that we need to learn in small pieces and small chunks, bite-sized learning. And so this is a fascinating thing where things are going because of technology, because of technological advances. Um, not only are we able to access so much information, but the, the uh, paradox of that is we now have learning explosion paradox, I call it, which is you have too much information. You have information overload. This cognitive load theory occurs. So you waste a lot of time just floating on the web. 
as opposed to um, you know, really focusing on things that you want to learn and only go there when you really need to. So I've said a lot there, but... Yeah, well, let's break that down a little bit. You know, it's funny, you talk about learning in the seams of what else we're doing. I'm thinking about an app I just recommended to my, a buddy. He's he's kind of brushing up on his Spanish again, and he's been looking at these different courses. And I'd bought Rosetta Stone and these other things. And the thing that had been the most effective for me is a free app called Duolingo. Yeah, I've heard of it. And it's like, you know, literally like two minutes in the restroom or here and there. You just flip it on and it goes to the next one. It's logical, but it can be done in these 30-second increments or two-and-a-half-minute increments. And, and over time, it adds up, right? That's a great example of you that. You think about these books that have been coming out about neuroplasticity and about uh, myelin wrapping for our brains and, and that it's consistent repetition with emotional focus that creates mastery. And you're right, like going and getting inspired for two days at the big event, it's a great first step for a lot of people and can be like the anchor for them doing more. But, you know, there's a, I can't remember who wrote this book. They said, uh, you can't teach a kid to ride a bicycle in a two day seminar. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like it's a great first step. And what's really troublesome. I, you know, I think about my last three years consulting in the training industry is when people think that it was the journey. No, no, this yeah. is step one in a thousand steps. True. This was not the thousand steps. Right. And, uh, anyways, I think it's fascinating what you're doing and it's not surprising that you guys have had so many customers, uh, interested in it. You know, you think about that, you're talking about cognitive load theory and I know I'm not as smart as you, but I'm pretty sure I know what you mean. Is this the idea that like the brain is like a cup and once you fill it up before that stuff has been processed, if you keep pouring, it yeah, just spills over it just the top of the cup? Over. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It, it, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it just makes, you know, I've been obviously studying more and more about um, podcasts and and infotainment and, you know, these different things for the show. And it's interesting, you know, with this average American commute being somewhere in that, you know, around 20 minutes, maybe a little bit over. And uh, it's actually part of the reason we designed the show to be about an hour is people can listen to half on the way to work, half on the way home, you know, or the people who listen on double speed, you know, can they can get through it on their way to work in that kind of 20 minute ish, maybe a little more time frame right around there. Um, well, switching gears for just for a minute. Let's talk about these five books you've written. Um, walk us through the, the I mean, we're going to put the links to all these on your page on ideationcollective.com. If anybody's listening to this on the drive to work or you're on an airplane somewhere, come to Treon's page on ideationcollective.com. We'll have the links to the Princeton paper he just talked about and, and the other uh, books, including uh, the books you've written. So tell us um, the title and, and what genre and, and just briefly what the five books are. Okay. Um, so I, uh, first one was learning explosion, and uh, it, it specifically focuses on how to do effective um, virtual classrooms or webinars. Um, and the reason why I wrote this was because we uh, discovered, Frank Covey, this is uh, back in 2010, when we started building things differently. We started using, um, creating engaging experiences, and wanted to share that with people. So just about to share best practices and how to do webinars that aren't literally um, death marches and uh, PowerPoint talking heads. So we then we do it very differently. The second book is along the same veins, same genre, the webinar manifesto, where we actually declare war on bad webinars, and we talk about how to do that. So we take the learning exposure to just to the next level and keep sharing that. And, and then I got into I have five children, and and so I wrote uh, five uh, three parenting books, which um, was more for myself than anyone else because <laughs> I think I've lost all my hair because I've had kids, and um, it's it's a difficult thing. And uh, I was able to write. I've always been intrigued by good parenting and read a lot of books on it. And um, 
But I found that especially men don't read parenting books. I didn't. I mean, I did because I was. Yeah, my I wife's got a whole shelf of them. I read like one of them. Ex- right? Exactly. I think that's the common thing. So I wrote my first one called Dad Rules, and it's literally a rule for dads, one per page. So if you can go sit in the restroom, it's a good restroom book. You open up anywhere, and you'll get a laugh. You'll you go, oh, that that's great. I, I relate to that, or I need to improve that. It's not hard. It's not a hard read. It was successful. So then I wrote Mom Rules with my wife. Um, obviously, I had to have the woman's perspective, or else I'd be looking pretty uh, um, strange writing a book just for moms. But they actually match up a lot in many ways. Many of the rules match up to dad rules, except from a mom's perspective. And then um, Reality Parenting as Not Seen on TV was my the third parenting book because a lot of us – That's a great at, title, by the way. Thank you. I think I think it's a, the best title of, of mine but, um, because we can't look on TV for great examples of parenting. It, it, we know the entertainment industry is meant to entertain and so they sensationalize. They go to extremes. And um, we, by the way, that's just a very small part of the book. The rest of it is just sharing um, great anecdotes on, on what we – should do differently as uh, parents. But um, my actual, in none of these books, by the way, they were just quick writes. There's something I wanted to get out quickly and I got them published, luckily. Um, but my real drive is, is in this research I'm doing with, it's not just to do with learning, but it's, it's how we process information when it comes to bite-sized learning and, um, or, or how we process things in bite sizes and small pieces, especially in a technology world. And you hit on it, learning language through Duolingo. I've looked at Duolingo. It's a great example of this. It allows you to get in, learn something quick and get out because we, all, we have busy lives. And so that's what was, what's intriguing me. But there's something else, by the way, the side, uh, uh, side effect, I guess, of what's happening to us as a society because we have this learning explosion going on, because we are so bombarded constantly by all this information, because we have you know, vibrates and alerts and dings telling us people want our attention, they need us, or something's popped up. Um, so I've all of a sudden realized, you know that hour drive to work, to and from work? I use some of that to listen to books and um, to learn. But there's sometimes when it's best to just be still, and so I've been researching all these all religions, and I started researching uh, some of the practices, best practices of some of our founding fathers, George Washington, um, as well as Abraham Lincoln, who came a little bit later, but also um, Benjamin Franklin. And and what did they do when it comes to still? And I'm titling this my search for still because if we don't have time to process, if we don't have time to think and contemplate. All the other great stuff we're learning and be involved in, then it will just flow over the top. Then it's just um, – it's waste. All the effort we're putting into learning and being distracted all the time, we don't actually have time to process and apply it to our lives. And so that's another interesting side effect that's happening is there has to be a good balance. Uh, have you heard of this book, Autopilot, about that subject? I have not, no. It's, it's great. Um, they went and did research uh, putting people in FRI machines, FMRI machines – and monitoring the brain, they did by accident. They were trying to say what part of the brain does this when you think about this, what part of the brain does this when you think about this. But they left the people in there in between the tests. Hmm. And when they didn't have anything else to do, completely separate parts of the brain lit up. And it started the scientific research of 
what happens for the processing in our brain when we're not actively consciously working on something and fascinating, uh, you know, really will sell you on why you need to sleep more if you want to be smarter and, and more effective. Um, and it's encouraged me. It's funny you talk about this, like that book literally changed. I'm, you know, I'm this audiobook guy. I'm listening to books on triple speed, trying to get through a book a week, you know, and the podcast I like. Um, but it's what encourages me to like turn the radio off, you know, t- t- turn the music off, turn the sound off and try to not think about anything to see what comes up. Hmm. Um, you know, there's obviously a big movement towards meditation and these other things. And, um, anyways, this book autopilot goes through the science, some of the science behind exactly what you're talking about. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you come up with. I need to read that. Yeah. And actually my, that'd be great because I'd love to hear the science on it, but I'm looking at, I'm looking at the practices and behaviors of those people that were successful in life and uh, not just religious leaders, but especially religious leaders. I mean, that was the change that happened in, in Buddha. I mean, he saw the poverty and he was a prince, he was rich, and he left that to sit under a tree and seek enlightenment. So he, he sought it through stillness and quiet. He didn't seek it through going and speaking to people about finding it. He, he thought he had enough base education on that. He thought he needed to sit and then start processing that. And it took him a while to do that. But St. Francis of Assisi, same thing. He went into solitude. He went into time alone. Now, we don't have to go to those extremes, like those two examples I gave. But even um, Jesus, if you, if you read, and I found 35 references in the, the New Testament uh, of Jesus spending, where it talks about him seeking time alone, and in some cases, sending the multitude away. And so I thought about that term, and I realized we have the multitudes, our friends, our family, uh, people we don't even know, seeking for our attention all the time on our devices, whether it's through social media or mm. texting or other things. Sometimes we need to send them away so we can have time alone to process. Okay, this is interesting that you're seeing it, looking at multiple religions. Uh, you know, it's it's funny in this politically correct world, it's almost like we're supposed to pretend religion doesn't exist sometimes, but there are like massive things to learn. Uh, have, you, have you looked at any other besides those three so far? Yes, I'm looking at the Muslim religion. As well as Hindu, you know, they have the great the Hindu, especially they talk about yoga and meditation, as well as the Buddhists are known for meditation. Um, so, um, Taoism, I've looked at that as very similar to Buddhism. There's a lot of overlap when it comes to this topic, and um, but even the last words from Muhammad, the, the prophet of, of Islam, uh, last words on his dying bed was two things was to revere women and remember Salat, which is the, the daily prayers that uh, the, the Muslims conducting. And in the Quran, it talks about conducting th- prayers at least three times a day. Since then, it's evolved to five times a day in the religion. But that's a great reminder uh, for everyone. I mean, the Prophet Muhammad is saying this is what's important. The last thing he says is to remember the prayer. And what does that imply? That means time alone with you and your maker whoever you believe that is. So there's, it's fascinating what I'm finding, and it, it's actually a, a duh find. It's obvious. Religions teach prayer. They teach meditation. They teach time alone. Um, but sometimes the obvious has to be stated because uh, common you know, sense isn't always common practice. You know, um, I, I should get better at remembering who said this quote, but 
One of my favorite books is uh, Austin Kleon, Steal Like an Artist, where he talks about, you know, people who think they're original just don't know their sources, right? <laughs> Very true. And he says, you know, steal from one is plagiarism, steal from any, that's originality. <laughs> but there's this great quote that says, everything that needs to be said has been said already. Yes. It's just no one was listening, so it needs to be said again. It's, it's so true. It's actually quite um, disheartening for an author or someone like, I'm, I, th- I think of myself as a researcher more than an author, um, because I, I'm loving researching all these different things. But it's disheartening for that point because you want to think, oh, I'll put my name on it. Oh, no, you can't. It's already there. But if you can restate it, you can um, add emphasis to it and you can add new angles and perceptions to it. So if you're interested in authoring, that's a way to do it. Yeah, let's talk about this. I'm interested in writing books. A lot of my friends are authors or are interested in writing books. Um, tell us about, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of like the Stephen Pressfield books, uh, the war of art, do the work, you know, uh, turning pro this, like, you know, show up, show up, keep, put your butt in the seat and, and write every day. What was the writing? What, when you're writing a book, what, what does the routine look like? How do you actually get past the procrastination? How do you get the thing done? So there's two parts to that. Um, I, I try to write every day. I don't always. Um, and that's because sometimes I'm just too busy. I have five kids. I just don't get to it. Um, other times, I don't feel there's anything to write. Um, however, if I put myself in front of a computer, if I had time, I, I could write every day. What about when you're like, no, I want to write this book? What does that look like? You're like, there's a book I need to write. I'm going to get this one down. What does that look like? It helps if you have a date. And a deadline? A deadline. Okay. And that's why it helps to have a publisher. So you don't have to, in many cases, you don't have to write an entire book and to get a publisher. You just have to write part of it and have the premise there so they can say, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. We like your writing style. He write the book. We need it by this date. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's what I did with all five of my books, actually, was I said, here's the idea. Here's a sample. And they loved it. And they said, okay, write it by this date. So obviously when you have a date, <laughs> then you, uh, it makes you work closer to it. But you can create a date yourself. You can say, you know, I need to get this done by Christmas next year. And it's hard for me to do that, especially if I'm researching a lot, because I will think, oh, I'll have it done by this date, but then I'll get down a research track like I did with um, this attention deficit and, and processing information and bite-sized learning, and I discovered a separate track on seeking still. And now I'm like, oh, dear, okay, what do I do? Where's, the, where's my focus? And both are very yeah, fascinating Yeah, how do you make that decision? <laughs> well, I don't have to. I do both because I don't have it. I don't have a publisher waiting for the books. So I'm writing, I'm writing both and I'm, I'm kind of depending on the, the What are the, the pros day. and cons to that? Oh, there's a lot of cons to that. You just don't, you might get neither one done. Um, you might it just take too long and someone else might write the book. Uh, the pros to it is you really get into the weeds. You, you get great research done and um, hopefully you can get it done on, down on paper. I, I, just so you know, for I used to have a, a deadline for that one book, my first one, and now since this, it's part into two pieces, I, I don't have a deadline. I'm, I'm just considering what should I do with, with regards to that. So I'm not a great example of what an author should do when it comes to that, except sometimes research takes longer than you think because it will lead you down different paths because you receive this enlightenment. Again, when you're reading, you need time to process. So often... It's funny, I joke about this, but often some of my greatest inspiration comes when I'm in the restroom, whether it's in the shower or whether it's on the, the porcelain throne, uh, because I, I actually don't take my phone in with me, for one thing. It's a practice I'm teaching so that you have that, just that moment, at least, of stillness, but you need time to process what you have been reading and doing. And 
there's these moments of enlightenment that will come to you. And you go, oh, that's an interesting thought. I never thought of that story the same way before. And so then you write it down. And you can go down that track. And so it doesn't – if you have time to do it, then great. Um, I would actually set time aside in advance so you have more time than you think. No, um, it's interesting. You know, there's stories now about people who've got these waterproof markers and stuff that they keep in the shower. Exactly. Because I think this is a common human thing of you're sitting there, your brain is not consciously working on something. The other part of your brain can wake up and all of a sudden it's making connections that, that weren't uh, maybe on the surface. And I just spoke to a youth group, uh, 700 of them, just a couple of weeks ago about this topic, about seeking still, because it is very scary to me. And I have some two teenagers and luckily aren't as bad as others I've seen who will sit together and text each other. Their faces will be down. I just spoke to three of them the other day at a restaurant. I'm like, I knew them, so I could do this. I said, what are you guys doing? You're hanging out together and you, your heads are down and you're looking at different things. And even if you text each other, look at each other. And what's happening here is our in-between time is being stolen and taken by um, distractions. Most of the time it's distractions, Jesse. I can tell you this. Teenagers aren't going to learn in the in-between time. They, they're being distracted. So before, that was time for you and me when we were young. We didn't have phones with us. We would, I would walk everywhere because we were poor in South Africa. It's the truth. It's not just one of those stories. And I would walk everywhere. But it was great because that was the time, the stillness I needed to process, to, to learn, to internalize. We, and even as adults, we're standing in the line, the grocery line. What are we doing? We take out our phone. We look at our email or social media. It eats up our in-between time, which should be used for processing and stillness and, and actually going to that next level of awareness. It sounds like it's a theoretical concept and, you know, like a Buddhist idea, but it's not. It's, it's a human idea. Well, where I really feel like the big possibility there is, you know, it's funny. You talk about the competition. Somebody else might write the book before you get to it, right? In business, you know, when there is a very obvious uh, gap and a need, um, someone like someone can fill it, but someone else could also fill it. Yes. You know, when when Blockbuster Video is making seventy percent of its revenue off penalty fees <laughs> to its clients, right? Uh, as soon as something like a Netflix comes along, it has massive adoption early, right? So I think about myself, and uh, you know, I'm like a relatively addicted learner, I think, right? Um, but this book autopilot really helped me with your, what you're calling cognitive load theory. Like I realized like in my quest to get ahead, my quest to outlearn the competition that I'm kind of like missing half of it. Right. When I, when I consume constantly, but it gets to the point that it's overfilling, it's like, you know, working out every day, but working the same muscle group and not giving it yeah. a chance to, to, to rebuild. Right. You're not giving it the right nutrients to rebuild like if you don't have the whole recipe of the learning plus the processing you're not actually benefiting um but what's interesting is and this you know i'll interpret a stephen covey thing but you know his quadrants about urgent urgent important urgent not important <laughs> not urgent important not urgent not important right i think about all the dings and the buzzes on the phone and how many of them are urgent but not important right exactly and um and yet you know, there's books like Hooked by Nariel and these guys who talk about like creating addiction and these kind of things and, and how that can be done with technology. Um, and for me, like when I have the little email alert buzzing in the corner, if I let that on on my computer, I'll I'll check it and yep. I'll interrupt any flow that I've got from what I'm working on. Right. Yep. Um, and I think like the the gem here is 
so few people will actually deliver on what you're talking about. The thirst for efficiency has drastically drowned out effectiveness these days, right? It's true. Um, when we can fill up every second with one more bit of learning, one more audiobook, one more podcast, one more whatever. Um, and then we've got all the distractions on top of it, right? The discipline to carve out time for stillness, I think, uh, I think it'll be, it will not be that many people besides the high achievers that do that. And I think people can put themselves way ahead on the probability um, by doing what others are unwilling to do of carve out that time to ignore the distractions, ignore the, the chance to get a few more emails in, ignore the, ch- right? And put off those things that are like fire alarms going, ding, pay attention to me. Yeah. Um, for something that is super important, but not urgent, right? That is, the, that is the challenge. We are being conditioned. We are allowing technology to condition us. So that when we get a buzz, when we get a ding, we turn our attention to it, which turns our attention away from something else that might be more important. And this conditioning is a, it's causing a much higher level of ADHD, especially even in adults. We, we are struggling with how to manage this. And you hit, you hit the nail on the head when you said not many people will be willing to, to discipline themselves to make that change. And that is at the core since the beginning of time. Self-mastery and self-discipline has been what has elevated people above other people. Frank, um, Benjamin Franklin is a great example of someone with self-discipline, self-mastery, who practiced 13 behaviors diligently every day. And, um, we can, can we get those 13 behaviors and post them on the site? We can get those, yes. Okay, okay. And so he and, – and, but my point is that has been from the beginning of time. Those individuals that are willing to do what is necessary to create self-mastery and in every case – and this is the argument I'm making in the research I'm seeing. In every case, those that are successful are those people that make time for still. And so we've got to be careful and we've got to teach our children – I'm not saying stay off of phones. My kids have smartphones. They go on social media. They, they do things, and that's fine, but I'm teaching them moderation in all things. I'm teaching them to be self-disciplined, to ensure that they don't allow the technology to rule them. That's a principle that Franklin Covey teaches in one of our training. Actually, it's called um, it, Five Choices of Extraordinary Productivity. One of the choices is just that. Uh, rule your technology. Don't let it rule you. And, uh, you know, that takes on more of a professional productivity feel for it. What I'm talking about is actually the self-mastery when it comes to the behavior, the everyday behavior. Well, th- this is a, a subject I'm super interested in. Um, and it's books, other books that have st- st- stood the test of time. Like um, you think about Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, right? It's coming up on a century of, of being in bestseller lists, right? And um, this idea of self-conditioning Versus letting our environment condition us or letting our technology or our neighbors condition us, right? Yep. Um, it really is a differentiator over and over. You know, the book is not called Work Hard and Grow Rich, okay? <laughs> yeah. I used to, in my teenage years, I worked construction jobs in the summer so I could make, make enough money to snowboard all winter without a job, right? <laughs> After college, I worked on the oil and gas pipeline with a bunch of dudes who worked real hard, okay? okay. I mean, like, we're up at five and we're... we're killing it and it's long hard days and you go home and you drop on the pillow right yep um and and they did not have these on average financial results even though they're getting paid a lot per hour um hardest some of the hardest workers i know right great people um but still the trajectory working hard at what exactly right and and the level of thinking that has gone on to 
what level of hard work needs to get done. Um, this idea of self-conditioning, it is so on average, right? There, there's a reason a lot of religious texts refer to humans as sheep. Yeah, true. Right? Um, it's really easy to do what the people around us are doing. You know, there's all these things about your income is likely the average of the five people's five people you hang out with the most. Whatever their average income is, yours is probably pretty close to it. These kind of things, right? All these studies about environmental consciousness. People have all these stated goals. And if you look at the data, it's most likely they're just the average of what their neighbors are doing. You know, right? They think they're so independent. Um, and so this this intentionalism about self-conditioning i really um i don't know it's what i what i'm hoping to learn more about to be able to do for myself and i really feel like it's it's uh this huge gift that literally every human could do now the probability is they they probably won't but the capacity that we all could is kind of encouraging to me you look at um you know you look at your background right poor kid from south africa and now you're published author master's degree doing these things, senior position at a $200 million company. Like these things are, um, they're, I don't know, to me, it's encouraging that anyone can achieve. Yeah. Right. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, when you think about books and, and stuff like this, um, tell us about anything that you feel like has been effective, uh, getting the word out about your own books. Um, what I tell people about writing books is for me, writing the book, isn't the hardest thing. The hardest thing is marketing it and getting it sold. That is extremely hard. Now, I had a publisher for five of my books, but guess what? Publishers don't spend money on marketing of your book. They want you to do that, and I have a full-time job. So um, what I've learned is uh, if you want to be an author and a successful author, there's a lot of luck involved. You want the right connectors. You're talking about uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. I mean, actually, Tipping Point, sorry. And he talks about the right connectors. If the right connectors connect you with the right people and talk about your book, then you could be a best-selling author. It could be. I mean, um, for example, out of my books, they will niche books. However, Reality Parenting is probably the best one of my books. Probably did uh, not the least, the, the, the most, the least successful of all my five books. Because not the right people knew about it. Plus, it's niche books. You know, no one buys parenting books or books specifically on e-learning or webinars. So I, I knew that going into it. So sometimes you, when, when you're an author, you just have to realize, I'm doing this to encapsulate and summarize all my research and find and share it with the world. And it's a hobby. Uh, unless you're writing a book that you feel is, is going to be a bestseller. And um, again, none of my books, I think, were meant for that, except maybe rea- reality parenting. But if you do that, you need to make time or have money to have a publish, publicity company because your publisher, unless you're already a best-selling uh, author, your publishing company is not going to spend the money on marketing your book. But it's also easier now than ever before to be self-published, which is something I'm starting to recommend more and more to people because you keep a high percentage of the profits. The difference is you don't get your book into a bookstores. Um, but then again, who goes into a bookstore anymore? Last time I went to a Barnes & Noble was, I mean, two years ago. I go shop on Amazon and you could put all your books, you could do Amazon self-publishing now. And they keep, you know, a percentage of the book. I've forgotten what it was. I think they keep 30% and you keep 70, which is a better percentage than the publisher is giving me. So there's a lot of options and alternatives. There's still value if you can get into some of the big publishers, um, depending on what type of book you're writing. Credibility or yeah, something. They, they do do some marketing and they do send out... Um, 
press releases to uh, different markets. But it, it's harder than people realize, not the writing of the book, but afterwards the, the getting it sold. It's like <laughs> the, you know, same thing for crowdfunding, right? Like we're doing this Indiegogo campaign at Child Rescue right now. And we've lucky enough, we've, we've got a crowdfunding expert agency called Crack the Crowd that donated their time and put it together for us because they believe in the cause. But, um, you know, we had so much thought that the, the platform did the selling. And it's like, no, the platform's more like PayPal. They process the money for you that you drive. Now, yeah, exactly. if you get big enough, it could kick in for you, you know, if you get enough. And we were really lucky they picked us up for Giving Tuesday, which was super nice, oh, nice you yeah. know. But um, you, this author thing, I think... Uh, this is a theme that we hear over and over from the authors on the show or other friends, you know, um, that the preparation and like, if this is going to be a financial win for you, you've got to treat it like a business, like (laughs) having something awesome is step one, getting people to want it from you is at least as big a chore, if not bigger. Right. And even then things might not fall into place. Now I'm not trying to be the Debbie Downer here because I want people to write. And I think it's important. You write the book, but you should write it for yourself. If you, you can't ever expect it to make you lots of money. You know, I've made some money on my books, but not lots of money. And what I'm finding is if you if you come to that, you have that understanding, then um, even then, I mean, I spent money on a publicist for my last book. I actually um, went on like a dozen radio shows around the country. And I've been on some TV shows for my books. And, you know, it, there'd be a little bump in the sales. But if the right people don't see it, because some of the TV shows were, you know, magazine shows during the day for my parenting books, which is fine because moms watch those. But some moms are too busy. They don't watch TV. So if people don't know about your book, no matter how good it is, they can't buy it because they won't know about it. And there's a lot of books nowadays. So um, all I'm saying is do your work. Do the best you can. But be prepared. And sometimes working with a publicist is the answer. But I spent some money with a publicist and even then it d- delivered me just mediocre results. So yeah, it's a difficult challenge. No, we had, we had another guest on the show, good friend um, from Child Rescue's board named Amy Stellhorn. She owns a an agency, a creative agency in the Bay Area called Big Monocle. And I look at these like millions of impressions that they'll get for their customers, right? Intel, these big clients. Um, and I she taught about this idea of it doesn't really matter what's on your website. What matters is what's at the watering hole. Yes where those people are already what you know like the the uh, african safari watering hole right <laughs> where where is that avatar that persona you're going after where are they hanging out already and how can you get on that doesn't matter what's on your website it matters on exactly the linkedin group they're a part of the private facebook group they're a part of that's what matters getting on and sometimes right? you don't have control of that you can influence it though you sure. can well um what we're talking about child rescue we always like to ask guests um what advice you would have for us at Child Rescue about getting the word out more, getting more people involved in, in stopping child sex trafficking? So this is – I love what you guys are doing because um, this is near and dear to my heart because I have five kids. And um, the stories I hear and you've shared with me and others about um, some of the – how young some of these children are. And it doesn't matter age. is not an issue here. But because at any stage, sex trafficking and child trafficking is wrong. Uh, we know that. Um, I would continue to share the story. Get the story out as much as you can. I think it's an awareness thing. I think if people are aware that this is really happening, sometimes in our backyards, that and what, what we can do to help. Uh, I think awareness is huge because um, it, it, we know it's out there and we don't realize, well, first of all, what exactly is it and what can we do to help? 
So I think that is continue to get your story out, continue to share. Um, and sometimes uh, I did hear another story just a week ago about a, an undercover team that went and, and, and freed some of these uh, sex slaves, these children. And the story was so um, shocking to me, but so inspiring because of what they did that it truly um, gave me a different perspective and helped me want to help as much as I could. Oh, that's great. Well, that's our, our crowdfunding campaign, that's what it's for right now, is for another one of these undercover rescue missions. Uh, this one's with a, a partner organization down in Latin America. Okay. Um, anybody who wants to check it out, come uh, helprescueachild.org. Click on the buttons there. Um, okay. Come see the campaign. Uh, thanks for that. Well, um, I know we have talked about a lot of books already, but when you, you know, you look at all these different clients you've worked with over the last decade, um, obviously being one of the, you know, one of the top firms in the world at what you guys do, um, besides the books we've already talked about, any other books that you would recommend to entrepreneurs or innovators out there who might be listening? That's a good question. Just this last year, I've been, um, rereading some of the classics, uh, self-help books and, I have realized why they they classics and why I love them because they teach principles that even though the, the, some of the stories and some of the anecdotes might seem outdated, the principles are true and they inspired me again. And so some of these, for example, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. Uh, obviously, The Seven Habits. That's a, I love the principles. I teach it every day and I still love it. Um, the Power of Positive Thinking, Norman Vincent Peale. Um, just fantastic. I know there's some a lot of religious uh, intonation there, but even if you're not Christian, it's got great principles for you. Uh, there's a book called The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, um, and I love the simplicity of his book. But when you, if you try to make those changes, for, for example, one of them is don't take anything personally. That's one of the agreements. And I love that because... We are so proud. Sometimes we take things personally when they weren't intended. And even if they were intended, we can't. We shouldn't let that person's bad day impact our day. And uh, so there's some great thinking there. As a Man Thinketh, another classic by James Allen. It's, uh, you know, it's old English. Uh, I love um, the principles yeah, taught. I love the book. I didn't get exposed to it in, well into my reading addiction. For people who don't know why that book's so awesome, why, why do you think it's awesome? It gets into the human nature of us, of, of, of man. It gets into the fundamentals that makes, makes us human and um, what we can do to just be better people. In a, in a, in a quick summary, I, I keep um, little summaries of some of the best things from all the books I read, all the books. And some of them, there's nothing. But um, as a man thinker, I have quite a few. Um, this one, for example, men are anxious to improve their circumstances but are unwilling to improve themselves. They therefore remain bound. goes back to what we were talking about. If you allow your technology or wasteful distractions to take your time and you don't do anything to improve yourself, you're bound by, you're being ruled and controlled by those um, distractions. You know, a story I share a lot about self-conditioning along this line, like a how-to. We're actually working on a product called the uh, Integrity Gap Journal. Okay. And it's, it's from a story of a guy who had made a big mistake at work and almost some of his coworkers almost died. And he went and sat uh, in his room, uh, at, uh, he was on a ship and 
just really had come face to face with the fact that his actions didn't line up with his stated integrity. So what he started doing is just journaling every day where his integrity gaps were. Hey, today, when, what were the times when I, when my actions didn't line up with my stated integrity and that habit, that self-conditioning, he ended up leaving the company and becoming the CEO of another big one and became an inspiration to a lot of people. Um, but this, but isn't it interesting, this idea of like wanting the results, but not wanting to pay the price, right? Um, and so, you just don't get the results. And, and think of the example you just gave. What did that individual do? He spent time alone processing his behavior. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. And so it changed his conditioning. He, he put the time and effort into doing that and it changed his circumstance. So, um, yeah, this, anyway. Yeah, any more so on many, the list that you well, right off the bat? Yeah, I, I love the... Um, the Anatomy of Peace. And it's Arbinger Institute book. We just had managing partner Mitch Warner on the show. Love, love the it, book. Right? Uh, and I love the fundamental truths in it and um, how, how to approach every situation with a heart at peace. I like that because it's, it helps me realize if I'm getting to a difficult situation and there might be contention, if I go in with a heart at peace, meaning, you know what, I'm going to not feel offended. I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to go in just with an open mind, an open heart. Then things it just diffuses the contention in those situations. Love it. So that just a few like of Obi Wan Kenobi. Ten. These are not the Jedi. <laughs> these are not the droids you're looking for. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Very apropos. So those are some of my uh, top ten. Yeah, books. that's great. We'll put we'll put links to all those on the page here. Um, so um, one of the other things that that has been a real fun part of the show is asking people um, maybe earlier in your life or earlier in your career. Who set an example for you on how to treat others and that's a, that's influence a great, you? That's a great question. I um, Growing up the way I did, I was always looking. I didn't have a father figure. So I was always looking for father figures. And there was a businessman in my neighborhood who went to church with us. He was just a really good man. And um, what I loved about him was his genuineness, his sincerity. And he didn't speak much, and which is interesting because I'm a – I have verbal diarrhea. I sometimes talk a lot and sometimes it's a bunch of crap. <laughs> but um, he was a man that I found was, had a lot of dignity and um, a very successful businessman. And, he, and when he spoke, you listened. And I've often thought about that and I've tried to learn and apply those principles in my life. So I have actually have changed my behavior. Instead of talking as much, I will often just sit back and listen and truly try and process what – Others are saying or what they are tr- intending to say and mean and um, and then only speaking when it's really adding to the conversation. That's hard for me, someone like me who has an opinion about everything. So, um, But that is something I've always admired. Uh, do you want to share his name or not? Sure. Rick Beaton. Rick Beaton. Okay. So um, anything else that you would say to like capture what it was about being with him that made you want to be more like him? He just carried himself with confidence. There was no arrogance. It was confidence – because he wasn't speaking and he just uh, – it's hard to explain. It's, um, some people just have that about them. Without having to say anything, they can just be – you're just in their presence and you know they're great people. It sounds like he must have taken an interest in you or something or he did. been aware of others in he some ways. He took me under, under his wing as a kind of a tutor, um, a mentor. I was his uh, mentee, <laughs> if that's the correct term, and um, in unofficial ways. And he just um, would give me advice as a youth when I needed it most. And a lot of it stuck with me. Just be wise with my finances and 
um, make sure I know what I'm working towards and yeah, things like that. Well, um, you think about the, the path your life has taken. Um, are there any defining moments you feel like you could share that, that have really helped you to get where you're at that you feel like, man, had I made a different choice there, I'm not sure I'd be here. There was. Um, I think the most defining moment was, so we were poor. Uh, my mother died at a very young age, 43, of cancer. Um, I was only 20 at the time. I did not know this, but I learned after her death that she had a trust fund, that uh, you know, life insurance policy that was in a trust fund that um, now was available to my brother and I. And it was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. It wasn't a lot of money. I had a choice. At that moment, I had the finding moment. I had a, the choice to make. Do I spend the money on things that I wanted or do I use it for education? It seemed like a simple answer, but I was in South Africa. The money would have gone a long way. It, it allowed me to come to America and come to school. I had enough money for one year. That's it. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to provide me opportunity to start school. I had to then get scholarships to pay for the rest of my schooling. But the defining moment was, do what do I do with this money? From a poor kid in a poor situation that could have used it to buy lots of fun stuff, which my brother did, by the way. He did not use it for education. And, and you know, it took him a lot longer to get to he's, – he's successful now, but it took him a lot longer than it would have, I think, if he had spent it on education. And so that is key for me. That, that was a defining moment. I came to America with enough money for one year of school and two bags. That's all I owned in this world and those two bags. So that was um, – Quite the. I was very nervous because, I, like I said, I could only go to school for one year. Well, thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, I think we'll wrap up here, but before we do, um, any other general advice of maybe things you wish you knew when you were younger, um, or or just what you've observed that you feel like could really make the difference for other people as they're trying to reach their ambitions. I think we should not underestimate the value of kind words and encouragement to the youth. Mm. Our youth need, even though if, even our children who sometimes despise us and are completely annoyed by us, when we are encouraging, when we say positive, I think we have a tendency to criticize and tell them what they're not doing. You should be cleaning your room. Or you should be doing this. But when we say good job on that, I love the way you, um, you know, for my daughter who's in a play with me right now, good job tonight. I love the way you said your lines. Those little things, those kind moments, those encouraging them to do something worthwhile. I have a daughter that's, She's only 15, but she's helping coach basketball for a boys' team. And, and so that's a great thing. And I said, that's fantastic. I love that you're doing that. That's helpful because the youth need to be built up. Now, not fake. I don't want to, I'm talking about not giving awards to everyone on, on, in a league where there's losers and winners. I don't necessarily agree with that. But genuine and sincere encouragement and praise and kind words, not just to our youth, like our children, but to other youth. They need to hear that because they're hearing a lot of other things that are not good and not helpful. There you go. That's great. Well, thanks for taking time to be on the show today. Thank you. Jess, anytime. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Thank you. 
Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.